about uh, these as the main ideas, that it should be Jesus ruled, elder led, deacon served, is the PowerPoint coming up there, and congregationally accountable. So we thought Jesus ruled, he's the chief shepherd who rules over us by his words. And we've also thought that it should be elder led because he rules by his word through gifted, spirit called, qualified Men, we saw that Christ has given pastors and elders who are commanded to shepherd God's flock under their care. Uh, Men who lead by teaching God's word and by the example of their lives. And we saw last week that a church is also deacon served. Men and women who serve particularly in practical matters under the leadership of the elders. Well today we're going to think about that last bit that we are to be congregationally accountable. And let me do a final plug for this book, Bible Centered Church. Um, this is a book that the elders and deacons uh, work through. And uh, if you want to get more information, why don't you think about getting that? And, and uh, uh, it's a cheap price to uh, £5.50, I think. So then what is the role of members? Uh, one member asked uh, the question uh, of one of our elders, whether the elders believed that members should simply show up, pay up, and shut up. Is that the vision of the elders? Well, I'm glad to say that's not the vision of the elders. But let's have a look at what God has to say. Please open the Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. And you'll find that on page 1218. Page 1218. 1 Peter chapter 2. If you found Hebrews, keep going. It's after Hebrews. 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read from verse 4 to 10. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. Now, here's the question. Do you know who you are as church members? Do you know who you are? Well, look at verse 10. An amazing verse. If you can move the PowerPoint on. Once you are not a people, 
but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see that there's two groups in the world? There are people who have not received the mercy of God and who are not part of the people of God. And there are those who have experienced the mercy of God and become part of the people of God. And notice too that you can change from one group to the other. There was a time when his readers were not a people, but he says, now you are the people of God. There was a time when his readers had not recognized or experienced God's mercy, but there was a moment of salvation. And he says, now, but now you have received mercy. So the wonderful thing is you can, you can change from one group to the other. You can become part of the people of God. Now, how does this come about? How do you become part of the people of God? Well, the answer was there in verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen and precious to him. It's by coming to a person. It's by coming to Jesus as the Messiah King. Although he was rejected by uh, the Jewish leaders and was crucified, in his resurrection, God declared him to be uh, the one who was his chosen Messiah, the one who was the most precious to God. And all who come to believe in him experience the mercy of God. And as we receive forgiveness of our sins, uh, made possible by his death in our place, we are brought into this new group, the people of God. And as you read through the Old Testament, you will realize that the uh, stone temple was a big deal. It, it symbolized the place where uh, you could meet with God, where God dwelt among his people. And so Peter takes up all that language about a stone here to show that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that uh, idea of the temple, the reality of the temple. Jesus is the living stone, verse 4. He's the cornerstone, verse 6. He's the capstone, verse 7. And all this chat about stones is a way of saying Jesus is the place where we meet with the living God. If you want to experience the living God, you need to come to Jesus. As we trust Jesus, we experience the living God. And because of who Jesus is, trusting him gives those who have trusted him a glorious new identity. So do you know who you are, church? Well, to understand what we're supposed to do as church members, we need to understand who we are, our significance of our new identity. And he uses three images in this, uh, in this little section we read. Three pictures, the uh, ideas from the Old Testament. It's very important that we understand the Old Testament. And as we understand the Old Testament, three big ideas are taken from that and applied to God's people, to uh, Christian people today. Spiritual temple, holy priesthood, or royal priesthood, and holy nation. So think about these. What are we? Well, we're a spiritual temple. Verse 4 again. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. Verse 5, what? You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. There's a sense in which each one of us is a, is a spiritual brick here today that God is putting together to create a temple, a meeting place where God dwells amongst his people. As we gather together, 
we're experiencing the presence of the living God, that God promises to be amongst us. And if we were to ask the question, well, how can people in Edinburgh meet God? The answer is, go to wherever Christian believers are gathering today, because there you'll meet with God. It's not the physical building that is the temple. Our Rose Street building uh, is a very useful rain shelter where we can gather over 600 people, but that's in essence what it is. This is in fact the third building of this church. The, uh, the original one was sold where Charlotte Chapel began, and uh, then they moved to a building that was on this site, but that building got knocked down and this building was put in its place and we're on the cusp of selling this building. Uh, but you know, when this building is sold, Charlotte Chapel, uh, the spiritual reality of Charlotte Chapel hasn't ceased. No, we, we're simply the crowd is moving down the roads and we'll have a new rain shelter where the people of God gather together. This is a place where people in Edinburgh can meet with God as they come and join our gathering. We're like living stones that God is bringing together, a spiritual temple built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And this is what God is doing in the world, gathering and building together people for his spiritual house as a place to manifest his presence and his kingdom to the world. And so while it doesn't matter where you meet, it matters that you do meet. And notice from verse 5, we're not only called to be a... um, Uh, a spiritual temple but we're also a royal priesthood verse 5 you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ and in verse 9 there it says uh, you are a chosen people a royal priesthood do you know who you are there's royalty in the room did you know that there's royalty in the room we're a royal priesthood Um, in Exodus in chapter 19 you'll see that Moses tells Israel that that was God's original intention for them that they were called to be a priestly kingdom Uh, as God's priestly people their lives together were supposed to commend the goodness and the glory of God to the surrounding nations that the nations would look upon their nations and say well what what an amazing God you must have to see the way that you live together, the way you relate together. What an amazing God that you have. Their holy lives as a community was to be an advertising to, to the societies around them, showing them to the, pointing them to the goodness of God. But now all those who have come to Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, have become God's holy royal priesthoods. So according to the New Testament, there is no special class of Christian called a priest who acts as a mediator of God's grace to his people. I'm not a priest. Well, not any more than you are if you're a believer. Uh, Whether you're a man or a woman here today, if you're trusting Christ, you are part of this priesthood with this awesome privilege of being able to draw near to God. This is one of those places that is an explicit proof text of this doctrine, the priesthood of all believers. An understanding that was recovered in the 16th century Reformation. We do not need a a special person in fancy clothes called a priest. We don't need a bishop. We don't need a pastor or an elder or a pope to mediate a relationship with God. It is through faith in 
Christ and in him alone uh, that all believers have equal access into God's very presence, his throne room. What an amazing thing. And you know, as, as, as time permits, I'm very happy to meet with people and pray with them. But you know what? My prayers are no more special than any of anybody else's prayers who are believers in this church. Uh, some people have got kind of a weird way of thinking that the church has only come to them if the, if the pastor turns up. Well, no, if anyone from the church turns up to love and care and pray, that's the church at work. Uh, the blessing comes from God, not uh, mediated through uh, the pastor. And it's a, it is as a whole believing community living out our lives together that we show the goodness of our God to the city of Edinburgh, to the unbelieving world around us. And it is, it, it is our privilege to point people to the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ as the place that they too can receive forgiveness. They too can be included and become part of the people of God. They too can experience the mercy of God. And notice with me from verse 5 that uh, we're not called to offer animal sacrifices anymore. I mean, as you read the Old Testament, there's a lot of animal sacrificing going on. Uh, you may have noticed we don't do that here. Uh, why is that? Well, because now that Jesus Christ has come, he is the, the finished sacrifice. All those sacrifices were pointing to him. No, the sacrifices we offer as a, as a spiritual priesthood are spiritual sacrifices. They're described in, in a number of different places in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 12, we consider this at the end of last year. Uh, we're encouraged to offer our bodies our daily obedience to Jesus as a living sacrifice that's pleasing to him. What we do with our bodies uh, every day of the week is an act of spiritual worship to God. Um, our giving financially to the to support of gospel work is a spiritual sacrifice, it says in Philippians 4 verse 18, that's pleasing to him. Uh, the praise of our lips, Hebrews 13 15 says this, through Jesus therefore let us continually Offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. Why do we sing so much? It's more than because it's enjoyable. It's part of our spiritual worship, our sacrifice, the fruit of our lips. As we joyfully and willingly declare God's goodness, his grace, our delight and our joy in him. And also it says in, later in chapter 13 of Hebrews, by doing good and sharing. It says this, and do not forget how to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. The way we love and care for each other and serve each other's needs is part of our spiritual worship, a sacrifice to God. Now, do we know who we are? Did you realize when you came in today that uh, we are a spiritual temple? We are a royal priesthood. Have a look around. Who, didn't, who knew there were such important people? But we are. We are a holy nation, it says in verse 9. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. See, because of God's electing love, God's people are now found in every continent of the world. And what unites us in Christ is far more profound 
than uh, any regional differences that may separate us. God calls us out of the world to become part of his chosen race, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, a people for his possession. Who do we belong to? God. We're his possession. You don't even belong to yourself. Do you know that? You belong to him. We have an identity that's more profound and significant than our nationality, our status, because of this new birth. First and foremost, then, I don't think we should, see, we should see ourselves as Scottish or Welsh. It's good after this weekend of Six Nations, isn't it? I, I praise God on a Friday night that I, I'm not just a Welshman, I'm a Christian. We shouldn't see ourselves as Nigerian or Palestinian or Israeli. We're Christians. We're part of this holy nation. We're not upper class, lower class, middle class, or some other class. We're not slave or master, but fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, part of this holy nation. It's revolutionary, it's transforming. It is this theology that actually eventually overturned the whole notion of slavery. And it is by our uh, living our lives together as a Christian community that we declare the goodness of God and the greatness of God the one, as he who saved us, he who brought us out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's what a church is. Now it's because all Christians are part of the people of God with this amazing identity that uh, the Bible places significant, New Testament places significant expectations on every Christian to play a part in the life of the church. It is great when members show up. I'm not knocking showing up. It's quite important. It's great when members pay up, that we, that we support financially what's, what's uh, going on here. But the last thing we'd want is for members just to sit there and shut up. That's not what we see here in the New Testament. So let's turn over the page to see how this, is, this theology is worked out in practical ways. So look at chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. Let's read that. And that wonderful high theology is worked out in very practical ways ways chapter 4 verse 7 the end of all things is near therefore be clear minded and self controlled so that you can pray above all love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins offer hospitality to one another without grumbling Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do do it as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So the end of all things is near. We know that history is heading somewhere. Jesus Christ is returning in full glory as the king and judge. And so we're a people of purpose who know that we have a limited time to make a difference uh, in the world for Jesus. So what should our priorities be as church members? Well, number one, pray. Verse 7, isn't that striking? 
The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Fascinating. Number one thing that members should be doing. Praying. Sadly, prayer meetings can be the worst attended. But, but, but Peter says this is your first priority. Prayer. Um, we've just thought we're a, a kingdom of priests. So what do priests do? They bring the matters of the people to God in prayer. The high priest would wear clothes where he would bear the, the tribes on his shoulders and carry them into God's presence. Our privilege is to be a people now, all of us, who pray to God. What a privileged access we have through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we should make the most of it. I think this personal discipleship plan is fantastic. Uh, Liam put it together. It's great. You might need glasses. It's quite small, but if glasses, you can see it. I can see it from there. Uh, but it's very good. I've started working through it. And yeah, what's our plan for praying? Is our privilege, what's our plan? And, and, and the opportunities for corporate prayer, ones that we should grab hold of as well. We had a great week of prayer at the start of this year, and it's been so exciting to see the way that God has been answering our prayers as the year has been unfolding over January into February. Seeing people become Christians, uh, both in our church and then through the, the combined CU Missions Week. I have to tell you that my favorite meeting of the month is the church at prayer, the first Sunday evening of the month. It's the, the service where I most feel that we're a family together as we pray and bring our needs and the concerns and hear how the mission is going, hear how we can uh, move forward with the mission together. Let's make the most of these opportunities. What should members do? Pray. Um, two, love. Verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. We've got a new identity now. We're part of a new group, the people of God. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. And uh, as God's people who know the mercy of God. You know, we know we didn't deserve to be part of the people of God. Gosh, we know the sin in our own hearts now. Why would he want us? We've experienced the mercy of God. Well, as people who know that, then we should be a church that shows that same love and mercy and care for others. A people who are committed to relationships of support and encouragement and nurture. People who believe the best of each other. And, uh, and when wronged and, and, and hurt, we are willing to forgive. I have to say, we're not always very good at dealing with conflict or offense. And uh, I was listening to a talk like this last week by Ray Evans, who's going to be up here preaching in March. And uh, he was talking about this very topic. And if someone hurts us or offends us, which, we, we, you know, it's not, will it happen? It's just, when is it going to happen, isn't it? A bunch of sinful Christians bumping up against each other. We're going to offend each other. There's going to be challenges. There's going to be conflict. So when, when that happens, how are we going to deal with that? In our sinfulness, um, our first step is often to talk to everybody else about it rather than going to the person who caused the problem. When actually the Bible says, first thing you should do, go and speak to the person who caused the problem. 
Don't speak to other people about it first. Speak to God about it and go to that person to talk about it. Matthew 18, uh, verse 15 to 17 says this, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. Just between the two of you, Jesus says. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother over. And even if you're aware that someone has something against you, actually, you're the one who should try and sort it out. Matthew chapter 5 says that. Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Do you see the priority that God places on our relationships? You know, that sort of offering to God. Well, don't waste your time doing that when you're out of relationship with your brother. Deal with that first and then come. To be a church that loves, we need to be willing to ask people for forgiveness. I I think this is an area that we can grow in as a fellowship. Uh, where actually we, we, we more honestly and directly deal with matters of, of offense and we, and we when, when someone brings something up to us, we could say to them, I'm, I'm sorry that I did that. I'm sorry that I said that. And ask this question, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? Now we often get very embarrassed when people ask that question. Will you forgive me? And our tendency, I don't know what it is, our tendency is to go, oh, it was nothing. It, was nothing. it wasn't a big deal. And you know it was. You were, you were thinking about it for days afterwards. You woke up that morning thinking about it and you were upset about it. But when they come and say, will you forgive me? You go, oh, it's fine. Liar, liar, pants on fire, we used to say in Wales. Right? <laughs> So actually, we, the way that, that, that will really restore relationship is if somebody says, will you forgive me? Do you know what the right answer is? Now, it, you only say this if it's true, if, you, if you're genuine. If you genuinely are willing to forgive the person, you say, I forgive you. And when we say, I forgive you, what are we saying? We're saying this. We'll never bring the matter up again in our conversation. So if you want to keep arguing about something in your marriage... Don't ask forgiveness or offer forgiveness. But it's a tragedy if you don't do it. But once it's done, when you say, I forgive you, you're saying, I'm never going to bring this up again in a conversation with you. I'm never going to hold it against you. Uh, in myself, I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not going to bring it up in front of other people. Um, I'm not going to recall it. It's costly. It's hard to forgive. But that is what love does. Do you see what that verse says? Love covers over a multitude of sins. Love would be a lot easier in a perfect church, wouldn't it? But actually what makes a church work is love. Love covers over a multitude of sins. Will you forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. That's it. We never speak of it again. That's love. If we fail to love and to forgive, you know what we do is we create a fake community where people are sort of pretend to be civil, but deep down there's a growing resentment, frustration, hostility, and it doesn't fit with being part of the people of God. There's nothing uglier than a church in conflict 
bitterly fighting over things, old things. It's ugly. It's unbecoming to be part of the people of God. Thirdly, show hospitality. Verse 9. Offer hospitality to another without grumbling. I love that last bit. (laughs) They're eating my food. They're drinking my drink. They're messing up my carpets. Yes. Offer hospitality without, without grumbling. Now, this is something Ray Evans mentioned in his talk, that the corporate world has kind of robbed us of the biblical understanding of hospitality. We sometimes think about corporate sponsors buying expensive tickets to big events and laying on free food and drink in a fancy tent. Well, if that's, if that's what hospitality is, count me out. I don't have a gazebo. Do you know what I mean? And uh, you think, oh, my, my house isn't that big. I don't have that much money. I can't do hospitality. Well, do you know what hospitality is? It's simply saying, I've got two clean cups. Do you want to have a cup of tea with me? That's hospitality. It's nice if you clean the cup, isn't it? Let's be honest. I have two clean cups. Have a cup of tea with me. You don't have to spend four hours hoovering your house. We all know we live in a mess. If you've got children, that's a reality. I think most houses with children look like they have poltergeists living in them. So, but, you know, walk over the toys and sit down and have a cup of tea and nice chat. That's hospitality. You don't, you know, it doesn't have to be fancy. Go, go around and have a burger at McDonald's. Sit down, have a meal. They'll serve it to you pretty quick. And what I'd say to you is if we're a holy nation, let's model to the world that here's something different. Um, there's huge ethnic tensions around the world. We're an ethnic society. But actually, how many people of one ethnic group have genuine friends in other ethnic groups. It's rare. And so when we offer hospitality, let's invite people who look different to us. Invite people with different skin color. Uh, If you're married, don't just invite couples, invite singles. Invite people from different sociological backgrounds. Let's model this genuine hospitality together how are we going to reach this city with the gospel how will we grow as a church to be a, a membership of a thousand to start off with well before we even get to talk about spiritual gifts here are the most basic things that I think are the most critical things get these things right and I think we'll, you know, we'll grow are we a church that prays are we a church that loves are we a church that shows hospitality Uh, as if you've been here many years you'll have lots of established relationships and and it's a challenge but actually have you got a vision to come and make new relationships to look out for new people what makes people really feel at home in a church and loved by it is uh, simply when other members notice them welcome them invite them to join them for a coffee or around for a meal because when you've experienced that then you know I'm loved. I'm accepted. They, they want me to be here, isn't it? If you come to a church for months and months and years and no one's ever suggested going for a coffee, well, you feel pretty rubbish, I would imagine. Fourthly, use your gifts to serve others to the glory of God. Verse 10, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength that God provides, so that in all things, 
God may be praised through Jesus Christ. See, every Christian has been given gifts and talents that can be used for the glory of God to bless and serve others. There's two broad categories there, aren't there? Speaking gifts, serving gifts. Both equally important. It's not like speaking gifts are are, are better and top serving gifts. Both equally important and needed. You know, we are loved by God, not because of our giftedness, not because of what we do. And actually, we should rest in that. But he's given us gifts to use to serve others. Um, we're a nation of priests, a spiritual temple, the body of Christ. And uh, uh, to use a metaphor from 1 Corinthians, you know, we can't all be eyes, we can't all be feet. Uh, in fact, God's put us together as a body with different parts that work together for his glory. So what's the role of members? Often, actually, in this topic, we can get caught up with conversations about voting and membership meetings. You know, But you know what? The main role of elders, deacons, and members is that we all work together for the glory of God as each one of us play our part to uh, build up the church the body of Christ. But from all that's been said so far, um, because we're equally part of this spiritual temple, this royal priesthood, this holy nation, it's clear that members also play um, an important role of holding the leadership accountable under our common submission under the rule of Christ. And the New Testament shows us members playing a role in four main areas. In matters of doctrine, most of the letters of the New Testament are written to the whole church. Have you noticed that? It's important that we all understand what the gospel is and what sound doctrine is. For instance, it's all the members of the church that are held accountable uh, for whether we are keeping to sound doctrine as a church. Think about the letter to the Galatians. In Galatians 1 verse 6 it says this, Paul says to the whole church, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel which is no gospel at all. Evidently some people are throwing you into confusion. They're trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Now listen to this, verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. Do you see that the Apostle Paul calls on all the members of the church in Galatia to sit in judgment on the preacher. And uh, even if it was the apostle himself, if they start preaching a different gospel from the one that they'd accepted, the true gospel. And and, and they should do something about that. Many of the times in the New Testament, it is the church as a whole that is blamed for bad teaching, not the leaders. The Lord Jesus uh, speaks to the churches in the book of Revelation. And he calls uh, on a few of them to repent of tolerating those who teach false doctrine. The church is tolerating false doctrine. Tolerating um, bad practice, uh, ungodly behavior. And the Lord Jesus says to the church, repent of tolerating that. In 2 John, the church should not offer hospitality and support to those who teach false doctrines. And so the members as a whole play an important part in making sure that the doctrine is held within a church. And so if we were to make any changes to our doctrinal statement, we would require a significant majority of the members to vote to approve uh, such a change. 
Secondly, we also see church members playing a part in the appointment of leaders. Now, it's interesting, there's no explicit teaching in the New Testament, whether by command or example, about the church voting on its elders. It's clear that they did elect, or at least somehow choose from among themselves, men who were like deacons in Acts 6. With that sort of deacon-like function. And uh, from that, and also from the fact that that when an elder steps out of line, he's to be rebuked publicly, it says in 1 Timothy chapter 5. I'd argue that actually it's, it's wise for a congregation to play a part in selecting its own leaders, approving or disapproving people nominated to be elders, whether they're paid elders as pastors or non-paid elders, and for deacons as well. Fourth area, a third area, dispute. Matthew 18, someone's got... Someone's offended you. Go to them first, and uh, if they listen to you, you've won, you've won them. But if they don't, what should you do? Well, take uh, take someone with you. And what if they don't listen to, to to the two of you? Well, take it to the church. It says in Matthew 18. It seems that the church is the final court of appeal or or, or witness uh, between a dispute. Discipline. In First Corinthians 5. We see Paul telling the congregation in Corinth to, dis- to discipline a member who is unrepentant about his sinful relationship by expelling them from the fellowship. In 2 Corinthians, he mentions that the majority of them had indeed inflicted that punishment. He'd been put out of the fellowship. But when the man repented, Paul urged the whole church to readmit him into the fellowship. And so what we see in this example is that the congregation has a final say in who is a member of the fellowship and who is not. And in matters of membership and discipline, the congregation is the final court of appeal, it seems to me, as we read the New Testament. Now, most of this work actually goes on privately by the elders dealing with people. But there are final stages that involve the whole congregation, it says. Now, really, those are the four main areas that I see that the Bible is, speaks into, the way that members play a part in the, uh, the ruling of the life of the church. I believe in the priesthood of all believers, but not the eldership of all believers. That having appointed some men to lead, they, they should lead. But the congregation do play an important part in holding the elders and the church to account for its doctrine. Has a say in the appointment of its leadership. Is involved in disputes. Is involved in, in discipline. And I think there are other practical matters where wisdom would say it's helpful to bring it. So, for instance, if you're going to buy another building and all the money is in people's pockets, I think it's very helpful to bring it to the congregation and say, are you behind this? And so, when, when, you know, let's be clear, when we're voting, yes, we're, we're behind uh, this move to buy a church, what we're saying is, you're going to give to it, yeah? That's, that, that's the point of, of, of checking. That's a practical area. And... Uh, I think we'll be coming to the membership pretty soon to talk about the cost of refurbishment of the building down the road. And it's going to cost us to refurbish that building. And so we'll be talking about that in the coming weeks. So start prayerfully thinking about what you might want to give towards that final part of the project. So in summary, what does the Bible say about how church works? Well, it says it's Jesus ruled, elder-led, deacon-served, and congregationally accountable with the congregations of approving or disapproving key issues and then really everybody working together for the glory of God and the building up of his church 
What a privilege to be part of the people of God. If you've not trusted Christ and have not experienced the mercy of God, why don't you come to Christ this day and become part of the people of God? Let's pray.